All right, rather than hold you all in suspense, I think I'll begin my lecture. In the second of my Terra lectures, we're going to wait for the History of Art Department and the Terra Foundation for sponsoring these lectures. If you were here last week, you heard uh, we give a lecture about America's finest war memorial, what I consider the greatest war memorial. Uh, not the Vietnam War Memorial, which is clearly one of the greatest, but the Shaw Memorial in Boston to Colonel Robert Google Shaw in the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. So that's what I talked about last week. It was a very sort of somber uh, lecture, as you might expect from that topic. Today's lecture is about somebody named Howard Pyle, who probably many of you here have never heard of, but he was the most important American illustrator, so considered the father of American illustration. So we'll be talking about Pyle. His uh, centenary, or centenary of his death was in 2011. And he was from Delaware. And the Delaware Art Museum was having a large retrospective show of his art and asked me if I would give the lecture to kick off the proceedings. So that's the lecture that you're going to hear today. It's much more personal than the lecture I gave last week in the Senate. You'll find out soon enough that it's very much sort of my response as a kid to how Howard Pyle later as an adult and thinking what that all meant. So with that, when I was growing up, we didn't have internet, smartphones, or video games. Our TV sets were small, black and white devices with only three channels, or a fourth if you counted the education station. Don't pity me, though. We got along with what we had. We played in the streets until we were called in for supper. We rode our bikes in packs. When friends went around to share the thrill of mobility with us, we happily did so on our own. And when we were on our own, and there was nothing good on TV, which was as often the case then as it is now, we happily resorted to books and comic books. At least I did. That's when I discovered Howard Pyle. I did so via classics the, the Classics Illustrated version of Men of Iron, a novel he wrote and illustrated back in 1892. This dynamic cover image of a jousty knight was by an artist named Alex Bloom, and it originally appeared in 1951. I acquired my copy, which you see here, in January 1964. I know because it's stamped uh, on it. I bought it at my local soda shop, Wentz's Pharmacy, on Main Street in Bexley, Ohio, and enjoyed reading it cover to cover while sitting at the counter and savoring a cherry-flavored Coke or a strawberry phosphate. January 1964 was only a month or so after the assassination of President Kennedy in Dallas. At a time when the term Camelot was on everyone's lips, action-filled comic books examining the brutal clashes and power struggles of knights in armor were anything but irrelevant to the broader political climate of the day in which two superpowers were poised to collide. I was also aware of Pyle through the reprinting of his books in inexpensive but sturdy paperback editions. At that time, Dover Press began issuing its line of children's books, and Pyle, long deceased, became one of its best-selling authors. 
Dover reprinted The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, first published in 1883, The Story of King Arthur and His Knights, originally published in 1903, and its 1905 sequel, The Story of the Champions of the Round Table, all books written by Pyle, as well as illustrated by him. There are also several folktale collections and the strange juvenile novel, Otto of the Silver Hand, about a medieval German boy whose hand is hacked off by an evil baron and eventually replaced by a silver prosthesis. Sometimes I encountered Pyle's work as I wandered through the stacks of my local public library, looking for exciting reading material, which for me often amounted to exciting viewing material. I found the diction of old-fashioned books ponderous, and the stories too clogged with description to hold my attention, but Pyle's illustrations and those of similar artists thrilled me with their proto-cinematic depictions of romance and adventure. Here I show you the cover of a posthumous compilation volume entitled Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, which was published in 1921, 10 years after his death. The picture beside it shows a Spanish galleon about to be raided by pirates. As the father of American book illustration, Howard Pyle, with his easily identifiable visual flair, provided boys like me endless fodder for the imagination. Such books made me imagine myself as a fearsome pirate, a bone-crushing medieval knight, a cutlass-swinging Revolutionary War patriot, or some other type of heroic individualist garbed in old-time clothing, anything, in fact, other than what I was, a skinny adolescent boy who wished the girls noticed him half as much as he noticed them. So as you can see, Howard Pyle registered for me with, for assorted reasons. The Classics Illustrated version of Men of Iron, which provided a prose biography of the author, the Dover editions of Robin Hood and King Arthur, and those musty old library books with their rousing color or black and white illustrations of epic adventure. I also knew of him indirectly by way of old movies on TV. Many of these films, as you will see in the course of my presentation, were inspired by Pyle and his envisionings of the past. Let me give an example now with more to come later. The 1935 Errol Flynn swashbuckler, Captain Blood, was based on a 1922 novel by the popular adventure writer Raphael Sabatini. The look of the film, however, is pure pile, as in the famous duel on the beach between Flynn as a pirate captain and his nemesis played by Basil Rathbone. What you're looking at is a drawing by Pyle and a still from the film. The first time I saw this movie was on a Saturday night in the mid-1960s when my parents were going out for the evening. My dad, spotting it on the TV listings, told me it had been his favorite film as a boy in the mid-1930s. It immediately became my favorite film, too. Looking back decades later, I can see how the movie might have meant one thing to viewers in the Great Depression, such as my dad, and another to young viewers such as me during a period of national prosperity. A tale of wealth circulation on global trade routes and an allegory of good leadership as embodied by Flynn versus bad leadership as embodied by Rathbone, the movie would have been, had one sort of meaning during the buildup to the Second World War and another different meaning at the height of the Cold War. 
Flynn and his pirates were essentially democratic, freedom-loving good guys who plundered the ill-gotten gains of despots and redistributed them equitably. A few years later, at the turbulent close of the 1960s, I still regarded Captain Blood as one of my favorite movies. Only now I tended to view Flynn and his men as rebellious hippies with swords, or as the 17th century equivalent of rock and rollers with guitars. Here's Captain Blood in the riggings of his pirate ship and the protest singer-songwriter Country Joe McDonald on stage at Woodstock. Pyle's greatest influence on pop American popular culture may have been in the imaginary realm of pirates and piracy, but he also set his stamp on the way we have come to think of legendary figures such as Robin Hood, King Arthur, and medieval knights. In each case, these figures are cultural archetypes that, for better or worse, encourage us to imagine our collective past in ways that shape our collective future. Let's see how this works, first with Robin and then with pirates. Robin Hood ballads of various types and shapes had been around for centuries, long before Howard Pyle gathered them into a single unified prose whole. The Robin Hood of English folklore had been a wily and violent thief, but Pyle, among other modernizers, converted him into a 12th century hero and do-gooder, still wily, but now violent only in his fight against injustice. And even then, Pyle, writing for children, kept the violence minimal. Thanks largely to Pyle, Robin Hood became a literary creation, a staple became a beloved literary creation, a staple of the Victorian and Edwardian nursery, and from thence he leapt onto the stage of American mass culture. In 1922, Douglas Fairbanks, Hollywood's most popular leading man, loosely adapted Pyle's novelistic telling of the legend, as well as other accounts, to bring Robin Hood to the silent screen. True to Fairbanks' specialty as a phenomenal acrobat, Robin Hood in this movie accomplishes amazing feats of gravity defiance, as for example, in a scene in which he, or his stunt double, leaps onto a closing drawbridge and scampers up an immense height to gain entrance to the castle in which Maid Marian is imprisoned. Whoops, keep going. show it again. No, maybe I won't. We didn't have these things when I was a little boy. All right, just watch it again.
here in an earlier scene in the film, Robin provides welfare for the poor and needy. This is surprisingly liberal behavior to find in a movie made shortly after the Red Scares of the early 1920s, during the conservative Harding era, when the gap between rich and poor in America was the greatest it had been in decades, and the notion of social security lay far in the future. Of course, Fairbanks' Robin is rather naive in his approach to economic distribution. He flings coins at people and hands infants bags of gold. Fairbanks' Robin Hood, however animated, offers little in the way of personality. He smiles and grins a lot, but that's not enough to bring the legend to life. The next screen, Robin Hood, did a far better job. In 1938, the hero of Sherwood Forest was incarnated by the devilishly handsome Errol Flynn, who in addition to being a superb swordsman, lit up the screen with charisma. He epitomizes the Mary in Merry Men. His smile is dazzling, his laugh captivating. Compared to Fairbanks, he radiates warmth and humanity. No matter how serious the scrape Flynn's Robin Hood finds himself in, he emits joy. When Warner Brothers produced The Adventures of Robin Hood, Americans were still in the throes of the Great Depression. Another world war was on the horizon. And here was Flynn's unstoppable Robin Hood taking and giving enormous pleasure in his acts of death defiance. A generation or two later, when I and millions of other young Americans were watching old Flynn movies on TV, his jolly good nature had a wonderfully bracing effect on us, offsetting our worries about nuclear war, juvenile delinquency, and the onset of acne. Pyle's Robin Hood is not nearly so jaunty and happy-go-lucky as Flynn's. Nonetheless, Pyle's Robin is indeed merry, as are the good, stout, fighting men with whom he surrounds himself. Thus, Pyle's verbal description of Friar Tuck, quote, beneath his bushy black brows danced a pair of little gray eyes that could not stand still for the very drollery of humor. No man could look into his face and not feel his heartstrings tickled by the merriment of their look. Now here's Pyle's pen and ink drawing of Robin Hood crossing a stream on the friar's back. With its beautiful decorative border, it calls to mind illuminated manuscripts, but also the neo-medievalist aesthetic of the pre-Raphaelite artists who preceded Pyle by a generation, and the arts and crafts designers such as William Morris, who were his contemporaries. Here is the 1957 Classics Illustrated adaptation of Pyle, which I acquired in the early 1960s. Placing its friar tuck besides Pyle's, we can see how the comic book artist, true to his medium, adds color and subtracts line, texture, and detail to make the visual information easier to grasp. I suspect that the comic book artist was as much influenced by Flynn as Pyle. Here's the corresponding scene from the Flynn film. 
I particularly like Pyle's drawing of Robin Hood's first encounter with Little John, who has knocked his young adversary into the water. An iris with a dragonfly at its base fills the decorative outer panel. In the inner panel, the tall yeoman with a plumed cap peers down from a log bridge into the pond, where bedraggled and bemused Robin floats amid water lilies. This is a delicious illustration, full of rhythmic visual echoes. A palpable breeze stirs the water, bends the reeds at the water's edge, and activates the windmill, the tall trees, and the billowing clouds in the foreground. The narrow plume in Little John's cap reaches out in the direction of the curdling iris leaf in the outer panel, joining together the separate sections of the image in organic harmony. Now for Flynn's take on the famous encounter. Here's the classics illustrated version. Note how cinematic it is. In the cell on the upper left, we are positioned from below, looking up at the two fighters as if with a low camera, low angle camera shot. The text reads, he gave this stranger a blow that could have felled three men. The next cell is a close-up of little John who laughingly taunts Robin, thou dost tickle me with thy plane. The bottom cell is a wide angle reaction shot with the camera, so to speak, half submerged in the water to catch Robin as he hurls backward into our space. It's straight out of Cinerama, the three projector overlapping image, widescreen photographic process that was the forerunner of today's IMAX and was introduced by Hollywood in the early 50s in an effort to keep audiences going to movies rather than staying home in front of their TVs. You're looking at a, you are there, you are right there, shot from This Is Cinerama, made in 1952. If we look at a recent depiction of Robin's first encounter with Little John, Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves from 1991, we see that the director probably borrowed as much from Classics Illustrated as from Pyle or Flynn. Costner's Robin Hood, by the way, is as much part of his time as respectively Piles and Flynn's were of theirs. Released shortly after the first Gulf War, it portrays Robin as a battle-hardened veteran of a messy conflict in the Middle East known as the Crusades. In 1993, director Mel Brooks spoofed the legendary hero in his comedy, Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Brooks aimed satirical arrows at Pyle, Fairbanks, or Flynn to be sure, but most of all at Kevin Costner, as seen in this pairing of advertising images. 
pile of differs essentially from all the pop popular culture versions we've been examining, not only in visual style, but also in gravity and tone. Unlike the later versions, his ends in elegiac sadness. He dares to recount the death of Robin Hood. The last full page illustration in the book shows Robin, haggard and worn, sitting up on his deathbed to fire one last arrow through an open window. Where it lands, that is where he wishes to be buried. Little John, his face darkened with grief, cradles his friend and master. Pyle details the wood grain of the wall and mantelpiece and the leading of the window, but leaves the planks of the floor and folds of the bedclothes almost empty of line. This emptiness provides a foretaste of the void that Robin's death will leave. Now compare Pyle's pen and ink account of Robin's demise to the 1917 oil painting by Pyle's most gifted student, N.C. Wyeth, a great illustrator in his own right. Wyeth's rendition is certainly beautiful, but I find it sweeter and more sentimental than Pyle's, less complexly attuned to the loneliness and gravity of approaching mortality. In the early 1950s, there was a new surge of interest in Robin Hood. In 1952, Walt Disney released The Story of Robin Hood and His Merry Men, with Richard Todd as Robin and Peter Finch as the Sheriff of Nottingham. It was broadcast in two weekly installments on Disney's Wonderful World of Color in 1955. A comic book adaptation tied in with the film's theatrical release appeared in 1962. The half-hour TV series The Adventures of Robin Hood, produced for British television but broadcast in the United States as well, ran for four seasons from 1955 to 1960. Its most memorable feature was the rousing song that closed every episode and became the anthem of those who would later be known as the Woodstock generation. Robin Hood, I won't try to sing it. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. Yeah, I want to give a the more horns here. to me at least, about the Robin Hood revival of the early 50s is that it occurred during a period of great political tension dominated by this man, Senator Joseph McCarthy. The Cold War was at its peak and the entertainment industry was under duress by anti-communists in Washington and elsewhere who sought to purge American film and television of any possible taint of socialism. Yet here was Robin Hood, a man of the people who fostered class warfare by stealing from the rich to give to the poor, and who lived with his cohort in an egalitarian, non-hierarchical, non-capitalistic communal harmony. One wonders what the senator from Wisconsin would have thought of Robin and his band. Make no mistake, Hollywood wasn't entirely pink, and not all of its best-known stars embraced or even paid lip service to the Robin Hood ethos, as we see in this next snippet.
Three quarters of a century earlier, Pyle had not shied away from the traditional view of Robin Hood as a wealth redistributor. He tells us that Robin and his men, quote, vowed that even as they themselves had been despoiled, they would despoil their oppressors, whether baron, abbot, knight, or squire, and that from each they would take that which had been wrung from the poor by unjust taxes or land rents or in wrongful fines. Thanks to Robin's illegal activities, quote, money and food came in time of want to many a poor family. So Pyle's book, The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, appeared at the height of the Gilded Age. This was a time as never before in American history of enormous disparities between privileged and poor, or to put it in appropriately metaphoric terms, between robber barons and the benighted farmers, peasants, and immigrants who comprised the vast majority of the American population. When Pyle published Robin Hood at age 30, he was still young and hungry. Perhaps he identified with the poor, having undergone near poverty as a fledgling artist in New York. Later, when Pyle was rich and famous and began to count politicians, robber barons, and captains of industry among his friends, he became fascinated with pirates and piracy, and the so-called golden age of piracy from roughly 1650 to 1730 became his recurring theme. He wrote and illustrated a number of books and stories about pirates. As I mentioned earlier, a compilation volume, Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates, published 10 years after his death, sparked new interest in the art of the legendary illustrator. One influential fan was Hollywood legend Douglas Fairbanks, whom we have already seen as Robin Hood. In 1926, Fairbanks converted his admiration of Pyle's Book of Pirates into a feature-length adventure film, The Black Pirate, which he wrote under a pseudonym and co-produced. He also played the title role while performing his own stunts. It's an excellent adventure film and holds the distinction of being the first full-length feature shot in Technicolor. The advertising poster for the film, which you see on the left, borrowed from Pyle's images, such as his 1905 painting, An Attack on the Galleon, seen on the right. The box office success of The Black Pirate led to a succession of pirate-themed films over the next quarter century. One way or another, all of them derived from Pyle. Let me remind you of some of the most famous of these. Reading clockwise from the upper left are the 1934 MGM production of Treasure Island, Warner Brothers' 1935 Captain Blood, Disney's 1950 remake of Treasure Island, which was the studio's first full-length live-action film, and Peter Pan, released by Disney in 1953. Pyle's influence extended beyond the realm of movies and comics. In 1967, the Disney Corporation, drawing heavily on Pyle, introduced Pirates of the Caribbean, an indoor water ride with animatronic figures costumed as pirates. It was a great hit, and years later it spawned the Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise starring Johnny Depp. Pyle, this is to say, invented our present-day image of the pirate. Earlier representations of pirates were generally stiff, colorless, and static. Pyle veered away from these bare-bones representations by adding color, dynamic energy, and vivid vividly rendered settings. Compare this 1974, I'm sorry, compare this 1724 drawing of Blackbeard with Pyle's 1907 depiction of a fictional pirate captain 
planting his booted feet on a steeply canted deck. Pyle's image has form far more life and movement to it. The perspectival, perspectival lines of the aft deck direct the viewer's eye beyond the captain to the roiling sea where a distressed galleon churns heavy smoke. The smoke clouds rhyme visually with the baroque turnings of the ship's railing and the folds of the black flag that spills from the top of the image down to the corner of the captain's cap. Made at a time when motion pictures were still in their infancy, Pyle's painting anticipated by years, if not decades, the capacity of movies to portray pirates with elaborate costumes and sets, fully realized seagoing environments, action on multiple planes, dramatic coloring, and intensity of psychological expression. That Pyle self-consciously sought to avoid stereotypes in his illustration allows his work at its best to offer fresh perspectives on old material. A curator at the Delaware Museum of Art, where the majority of Pyle's paint, pirate paintings and drawings are located, has told me that filmmakers for Pirates of the Caribbean drew heavily on the museum's collection when conceiving sets and costumes for their films. Unfortunately, this clip uh, isn't playing on, on the computer we're using here, but it's a scene from Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, released in 19, the first of the series, released in 2003. As you would have seen, it's not only in costume and set that borrows from Pyle, but also in terms of the dynamic motion and inherent drama that gave life to the best of his pirate images. So let's return to the first of the Pyle-derived pirate movies, The Black Pirate. Its most famous moment occurs when the title character, after single-handedly capturing an enemy ship, makes a rapid yet graceful descent from the heights of a mast by plunging his dagger into the canvas of a breeze-filled sail and riding the knife down to its deck. This is a spectacular stunt, rich in symbolic overtones, showing the self-reliant individual taming the surging power of technology epitomized here by the 18th century sail. refused his pirates, whether heroes or villains, such unmitigated control of their environment. In this regard, his pirates are the antithesis of what Hollywood later envisioned. As often as not, they are victims of a hostile environment, not its supreme masters. The unsparing view of existence in which a cruel universe torments poor, suffering humanity with its perverse indifference found powerful expression in the work of the American literary naturalists Stephen Crane, Theodore Dreiser, and Frank Norris. I believe it emerges from Pyle's work as well. Take, for example, Marooned, an illustration he made for Harper's Monthly in 1887. It shows a lonely figure sitting hunched over on a desolate strip of beach. He seems resigned to his fate, 
death by thirst or starvation, if not from the madness of endless solitude. In The Black Pirate, Fairbanks is also marooned, as seen in this clip. But make no mistake, in Fairbanks' film, the Maroonies' dejection is only momentary. In the very next scene, Fairbanks' is swashbuckling individualist springs into action. When the bad pirates land on this desert island to bury their treasure, he takes them on without an ounce of hesitancy or fear, fights a duel with their chief, kills him, and summarily takes over leadership of the band. In 1909, two years before his death, Pyle painted a new version of Marooned. Despite its golden hue, it's darker, lonelier, and more despairing than the earlier version. He eliminates the bottle from which the marooned pirate might drink or even send a call for help, and he increases the expanse of sand, reduces the size of the figure, and places him on the horizon line, making him appear that much more remote from human contact. Further darkening the mood is the sky. No longer clear and unthreatening as in the magazine image, it now palpitates with clouds. A flock of birds wheeling about in the heights taunts the beach sailor with the freedom of mobility he so sadly lacks. Pyle's later version of Marooned, the 1909 painting, is starkly modern compared to the earlier version or to the passage we've seen in Fairbanks's film. The painting's vast horizontal vista inhabited by a sole diminutive figure set off asymmetrically to the side, calls to mind, oops, sorry, sorry. Okay. calls to mind the desolate widescreen compositions of cinematic masters of the 1960s, such as Michelangelo Antonioni, Stanley Kubrick, and David Lean. Here we see a still from Lean's magnificent 1962 desert epic, Lawrence of Arabia. Make no mistake, I'm not claiming that David Lean and the other epic filmmakers of the 60s were looking at Pyle, but only that Pyle, half a century earlier, had grasped the psychological potential of widescreen composition. Pyle's pirates should never be taken literally. That is, non-metaphorically. They are always more than simply pirates. Consider these two depictions of duels in the sand. The hero, the one on the left, his back to the viewer, has made a bid to replace the captain of a band of pirates. Onlookers study the engagement with grim concern, for they must accept as leader whoever proves stronger and more ruthless. In the painting on the right, two knife-wielding pirates embraced in a death struggle under the setting sun, while the crew looks on intently. For again, their own survival depends on that of the fitter or more devious of the combatants. Now here's Fairbanks' version of the duel of the sand, showing him eliminate that pirate captain I spoke of earlier.
very gruesome way of making this guy die. These pictures allegorize the social Darwinism of the Gilded Age. Life is a dog-eat-dog -dog affair, an unending struggle for limited resources, a relentless competition which only the fittest and boldest survive, and only for a limited time before they too must succumb. Pyle appreciated the irony that his fame was based on depictions of scalawags and scoundrels, brigands and thieves, social outcasts, and violent aggressors. He had a sense of humor about this duality, pointing out the oddity that he, quote, a Quaker gentleman in the farmlands of Pennsylvania, should devote such ardent attention to men of the past who epitomized lawlessness and greed. What he admired about the pirate, he said, was that, quote, he knew his own mind in what he wanted. In other words, he saw pirates as decisive men of action, which by all accounts he was as well. Like many of his generation, he seems to have regarded pirates as spiritual forefathers, figures to be emulated, within reason of course, for their transgression of repressive social norms. In, 19, in, in photographer Edward Steichen's famous 1903 portrait of America's most feared financier, J.P. Morgan, the analogy between capitalist and pirate was explicit. So much so that Morgan despised the photograph and refused to accept it. With good reason, too, for it makes it seem as though he's clutching a knife in his fist. Did you see the knife? In this, he's like the combatants in one of Pyle's death struggles on the sand, except that in Morgan's case, it's not really a blade he holds in his hand, but rather a chair handle gleaming in the light. Over the decade, Pyle's themes have found their way into other types of films besides pirate movies. The atavistic lust for gold depicted in So the Treasure Was Divided returned with a vengeance in Eric von Stromheim's 1924 silent classic, Greed, shown here on the left, and in the 1948 Humphrey Bogart saga of Greed and Betrayal, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. In Oliver Stone's 1987 hit film, Wall Street, Gordon Gekko, played by Michael Douglas as a corporate raider in an Armani suit, proudly proclaims greed is good, thus providing a catchphrase that in Reagan-era America was both reviled and admired. Since 2008, Hollywood has turned out a spate of movies about white-collar piracy, with movies such as Michael Clayton, Duplicity, The Informant, Margin Call, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Big Short, and my own personal favorite in the genre, The Social Network. Action movies of the past 30 years that have drawn on the pirate archetype, whether it's good guys or bad, include The Wild Bunch, Star Wars, Waterworld in Gangs of New York, to name but a few in which powerfully self-reliant heroes or anti-heroes take charge of marauding gangs in lawless times through sheer force of will. Here, alongside one of Pyle's buccaneers, is young Mel Gibson in an early starring role as a futuristic land pirate known as the Road Warrior. Piracy remains with us today, literally so, as described in this recent cover story in the New York Times Magazine, 
but also figuratively, as in this New Yorker cartoon. We should make it past the rocks by nightfall, provided our luck holds, says the pirate leader, who clearly has not had a very good run of luck, suggesting that there's little we can do to avoid the hard times ahead. We live in a new Gilded Age. Knaves are everywhere. We seek Robin Hood. We long for King Arthur. We hope for pirate captains who will lead us past the rocks. Pyle's time has come again. Thank you.